Hello, this is Dr. Jeff Craig, Superintendent of West Aurora Schools, and welcome to episode 24. And today we are featuring our two Pats. That would be Pat Dacey, our Capital Projects Manager for District 129, and Pat Callahan, a co-founder of Studio GC Architecture and Interiors. So a little background here. Mr. Dacey was uh, hired, and we just had this conversation recently, uh, back in 2015, and as his original assignment was to oversee uh, the opportunity to execute the $84.2 million building projects that was approved through our referendum. And uh, since completing those referendum projects, he has kept busy with our continued building improvements and environmental sustainability initiatives district-wide. Uh, Mr. Dacey is uh, tasked with ensuring that our projects are done on time, on budget, and are done to the level of quality we expect. So, Pat, thank you for being here today. We oh, appreciate my it. My pleasure. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. You know, fortunately, we don't have any cameras on you today because we it's know we, you like being in that spotlight. I really do. Yes. The things Relish strive. those opportunities. I really like to be on the, <laughs> in the spotlight. That's my place. Yeah. Well, today's for a good reason, though. And the, the other Pat, uh, Mr. Callahan, uh, as we affectionately call you, has helped us not only realize our goals um, to incorporate the newest technology ideas and features to enhance our learning environment, but uh, his personal vision is to be a good listener, which if you've ever spoken with him, you know this to be true, create opportunity that drives our innovation, and then to be accountable to those who work with you. And Mr. Callahan, uh, I, I think I've said this many times when, you know, there are other districts that are always in search of quality architects. And, and uh, tell me about Pat Callahan and tell me about Studio GC. And I always tell them you get more than an invoice with Pat Callahan. Um, and so I know that you help us think about ways to be efficient, and you are certainly have been a long term partner of our district and we appreciate you being here today it's my pleasure so um, i'm going to bounce back and forth between our two pats and uh, since you can't see these folks i will try to identify which pat is speaking and uh, let you know where we're going with this but um so i'm going to start with pat dacey our our um, projects manager so you have an extensive background in uh, an electrician I do. But yes. you bring a wealth of other experiences. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those experiences are that have led to be uh, your expertise as you've shared with us in our district? Well, I certainly will. I, I started in the construction industry in, in 1979, as a matter of fact, as a truck driver for an electrical contractor, DeRosier Electric out of Berkeley, Illinois. Did a lot of work throughout Chicago. Um, at that point, I was encouraged to sign up for the electrical apprenticeship, which took me about four and a half years to... Oh of four years of applying and four and a half years to get accepted. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, there wasn't a lot of work. It was during one of our recessions, if I don't recall, but I was very fortunate to get in. And I served a four-year apprenticeship, was an active electrician until I took a position in the Oswego School District in 2007 as a uh, overseer of capital projects. They had passed a $465 million, I believe, referendum at that time. Very they substantial. Did. They had numerous schools planned to be built, including a new high school. So they needed somebody with the background that I had, which was in the MEPs, the mechanicals and electrical and plumbing portion of the, the construction industry. So they, I was very fortunate to get that job as well. I held that position until coming here in 2015. And it's worked out extremely well. I've been very fortunate here. As you mentioned in your opening remarks, uh, this was probably a three and a half, four year 
deal that I had agreed to. Yes. You know, once the referendum money was gone. We didn't anticipate having you around all this time. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. I was a little surprised myself. (laughs) Not used to getting invited back either. But anyhow, it's worked out really well for me personally. And uh, it's it's been a great experience working with you and the administration and our architects and engineers. As you know, I'm in the planning stages of all of our projects, working from the, the ground up to when they're completely done. So it's been a heck of an experience and a great education, really has. Well, I think the experience has been mutually beneficial. We, we um, you know, when we started to take on just the, the immense scope and the, the expediency with which we tried to uh, execute, it was in our best interest to have somebody that was looking out for our best interest mm-hmm. uh, from a school district rather than hiring, you know, I don't know if, if folks listening in uh, would understand that a lot of times you hire somebody from the outside to run these projects. Sure. And and they don't have any loyalty or allegiance to the school district mm-hmm. per se. Uh, but we were fortunate enough not only to have you um, as our representative, but also our architect who's been with a partner for the district for many years mm-hmm. leading up to this. But I, I want to I dial back a little bit. When you talked about going through your apprenticeship mm-hmm. and that process and the, the vast difference of how that looks today, yeah. And a lot of the union halls, whether it's carpentry, electrician, mm-hmm. plumbing, whatever it might be, you don't see those those filled with people going through that three and four and five year experience and then having to wait on the bench for an opening. Sure. Yeah. Now they're they're beating the bushes to try and get people to show up for this training. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the jobs are plentiful if you're willing to, to work and get after it. Yeah, there's certain qualifications you have to have. But I remember when I signed up, there was over 600 applicants oh, and they were accepting 12. Wow. I was lucky enough. The, uh, I remember I was number 53 with my first application, which was pretty darn good out of 600 applicants. But it took four and a half years. There was a year where they didn't accept any apprentices because there just wasn't enough work. But now it has changed a great deal. Yeah. Another thing I had done throughout this was uh, I was an instructor for apprentices, and uh, that changed a great deal also. They, they actually ended up sending us away to, uh, at that time, it was the University of Tennessee, and we would go there for a week as instructors. The, hmm. the entire IBEW was invited. There was over 1,000 uh, instructors on the campus of the University of Ten- Tennessee, and they're, they're teaching you how to teach, which was something they had never you know, done before that organized labor has has evolved also yes. with the educational process. And the apprenticeship is no longer four years, it's five now. So yeah, things have changed a great deal over that time. And then here we are now building facilities to help That's right. have Isn't our kids something? enter into that. that yeah, workforce. after we took those programs out, yes. we're putting them back yeah. in. But yeah. very, very rewarding. Absolutely. So now I want to turn attention to the other Pat, Pat Callahan. You know, it's, I think curiosity... People, people think there's, you know, there's some allure. I'm an architect, you know, to be able to say that, that I'm in that field. And we were just talking earlier today in, in another conversation about, you know, whether it's architecture, whatever the field, leadership is still a challenge. So I, I'm curious, A, um, what inspired you to aspire to um, getting into the field of architecture and then creating your own firm that has now broadened from not just putting lines on paper, but uh, creating some design and some interior um, mechanisms. So I'm curious to hear that evolution, but what what really kind of intrigued you to go into architecture? So growing up in the city, um, I had a pretty good backyard. 
and that was downtown Chicago, yeah. and it's kind of heyday in the development, you know, construction of the Sears Tower and and John Hancock, and those buildings were iconic and and things you could see. I could see from my backyard. Um, but my father was a firefighter, and so we spent a lot of time driving through the city in the residential areas. And I think my uh, aspiring to be an architect was twofold. I love the creative side, which my mom encouraged. My, as you well know, my mom passed in, yes. in, in January, but I give her all the credit for encouraging me to, to use my creative skills, drawing and artwork and those kind of things, because I love that. I still do. But um, dad kind of let me see the other side of it, which was the, the structural side of things, like how you put things together, how things stay up, what happens when a building catches on fire, what I'll call the more technical side of mm. architecture. So... Um, I guess my delivery into the into the into the profession uh, and going into architecture as a, a student, uh, I really didn't know what I was getting into. I guess it's uh, very characteristic of most people of my generation. You know, we didn't have a lot of apprenticeships. You kind of have an idea what these things are, and certainly the Brady Bunch on TV was not quite the reality of what it was all about. Um, but when I when I when I kind of finally started getting into it, I realized it was really uh, a profession of service. Um, you know, solving people's problems, creating spaces to to make people's lives easier, uh, more more inspirational. Um, and then, fortunately, after I graduated architecture school, I was fortunate to start with a firm uh, that predominantly did schools. And so, my my initial, I guess, training was in schools and not just repairing them, but really fundamentally looking at how teachers work with students and how students work with parents and how schools work with communities and how could we begin to build a, a better mousetrap, if you will, um, because at that time, you know, it was more cells and bells. There wasn't a lot of creativity in terms of how we were designing spaces to inspire students and teachers to, to teach differently or to learn differently. And that really was the, the start of uh, my career. And really, when you describe it, you just observe behavior, right? And and I think, you know, the school system is probably one of the, this is a whole different, probably three podcasts from now, um, but it's a whole, the school system is probably the slowest evolving entity. It just takes a long time. And many years think about our bell schedules, our eight period days, when we start school, when we finish school in the year, you know, we look, we subscribe to the agrarian model, which very few kids are now subject to having to work in the fields. We think about the factory model. So we just don't change very much. And, and probably what is unique about what you observe and see how people function in space and even how it looks in that space, as we've given you some, some jibes about uh, curved walls and curved ceilings and clouds. and That's creativity, it, Jeff. It is creativity, <laughs> yes. And, and I don't know that if, if I were to draw a picture in front of me. But I think it, it's... Um, it's a different way to think about how we use those spaces, which um, is a unique challenge because we just trudge for the last 130, 40, 50 years doing the same thing. And when you introduce that creativity and when you introduce a different way of thinking about it, it's a whole different perspective. And um, it's something that we've had many conversations because Pat Dacey goes, so give me the plans, give me the blueprints, let me go get it done, just stay out of my way. Who the hell made this wall curved? Why is this crooked? Why come we don't have straight lines? And I'll go, why are we paying extra to do all this stuff? It feels fluffy. And then, so then you come out and say, well, it looks like this and people act like that and it gives different optics. And it's like, oh, well, I guess we didn't think about that. So it's, a, it's an interesting takeaway that you have that brings um, a whole different flavor to the X's and O's and the, the straight lines and the, the actual ink on paper 
of how we build schools, how we rebuild schools, how we retrofit schools um, to match, as, as we talked with Pat, with the unions, we've, we've been evolving. And a lot of times uh, that's, that calls for big change in how we think differently. And some of that is we blame on you or you take the credit. But either way, I think that's, it's, it's a good way for us to, to move into uh, more contemporary times. I wanna, I'm going to ask this question a couple different ways. I want to ask first, because we, we covered a little bit of this ground earlier today in a different discussion, but so question one is, what do you think it, it takes to be successful in your field? Question one. Question two, a part of that is we've talked about the X's and O's of projects, getting done on time, on budget, making sure it's done with quality, making sure people are accountable for doing their part. Pat Dacey, you're, you know, you're calling people and how come this person isn't on the job? How come the, the tinner isn't here and the plumber isn't there? The electrician isn't doing this and there's an order of operations and we have bid specs and we have, it's a, it's a very complicated process. But in order for this all to work, we have to have relationships with people. We have to be able to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, or hey, this isn't, how is this, how is this not getting done? Or why, why aren't we gonna hit our mark? So I wanna know about how you develop those, and this is gonna open up to both of you guys, Developing those relationships to be able to have enough impetus to get the job done and kind of less than gingerly nudge them forward so we, we do hit our marks in terms of time, uh, but also that we know we have to work with these people. And as you found, Pat Dacey, we've had projects since 2015, and we see these same faces that have come back over the past mm -hmm. seven years. So we got to work with these folks again. So how do, you, how do you step up to the precipice get them to do what they need to do, but also know that we have to invite them back again. So Pat Callahan, in the field of architecture, what are some, what are some things that you feel are really important to be successful first? Um, you know, in your introduction of me, you know, being a good listener, you know, I, I think, I think that when you sit back and have to solve someone's problem, if you kind of mansplain and go right in and solve the problem. You don't maybe solving the wrong problem. Sure. Right. You know, to me, uh, uh, my perspective on schools has evolved over time. You know, when I was a young architect, it was about chalkboards and tack boards and casework and storage and desks and chairs and making sure that there was proper lighting. That was more the, the kind of things of a room. Now, to me, it's more about time, right? How much time can we get children engaged in the learning environment? How can we improve the, the space itself to make teachers work easier, let make or reduce the amount of time we set up? So part of that is being a good listener, understanding, using your kind of creative uh, juices to, to really solve the problem that we see before us. But identifying what that problem is is the biggest challenge, right? Because that requires conversation. That requires the ability to kind of probe a little bit. And, and I think that's really what this team for West Aurora has done exceptionally well because you, you bring value when you bring a different perspective to a discussion like that. And when I first met Pat and we started this process together, I think the, the greatest success of the work for the referendum had to do with planning out the schedule mm, and yes. bid packages because it, it, it made the contractors real. We engaged the contractors early, and this was all at Pat's suggestion. We kind of viewed things from two perspectives. One is how do we design things and how are we creative to get bid packages pulled together and that, that kind of technical stuff that you talked about earlier. But we brought a different um, per perspective to it in bringing the contractors forward. 
And now I think you've built con- relationships with contractors, not just to work with anybody, but they want to work with you, right? So we have a good relationship with the contracting community, I think in, in large part due to what Pat has kind of brought to this, this whole process. Yeah, I'll never forget, and Pat Dacey, in your office, you had this, we, we purchased this huge 12-foot whiteboard, and you put this schedule on there for all mm-hmm. the different projects, and whether it was the pre-bids and the bids and the board approvals and, and all those, I was just an incredible piece of just information to keep up with and stay on track oh, with. It was. Two, uh, 2016 yeah. was a huge year, but it was about organization, as, and as Pat mentioned, bringing the contractors in and making sure everybody's playing well together. It's really what it boils down to. I'm not going to say there is adversarial relationships between contractors and architects, but sometimes there's conflicts. The contractors tend to dwell on the one thing that the architect got wrong yeah. and not the 200 of them that he got right. Yeah. So that's, that's part of my job is to identify that and say, look, he got all this right and all you want to talk about is this one thing. And then also Studio GC is open-minded enough to listen to them. I think that's really a very important piece too is when you listen to the contractor and realize that when we bid out, we're, we're taking the low bidder. So he's already probably taken a lot out of the job just to get the job. And, and I understand that, and the architects do too. So we're a little more forgiving, not generous, but certainly understanding and willing to work with folks, maybe doing things a different way that might save them a little bit of time and money. So I think all those things are really important to being successful in any construction project, whether it's a school or a shopping center or whatever. So let, let, me, let me probe down a little farther. You, you, you kind of open the door a little bit. So when... Somebody says, so you're a project manager. So you sit in your pickup truck, drink mm-hmm. coffee, and just watch people work? Pretty what much. What is that? <laughs> yeah, that's what they... You, you can't tell the taxpayers that because hopefully they're getting more out of that. Well, that's very true. But yeah. being on site and understanding what the folks are doing when they're building a building, and then they realize that, okay, well, you're not just sitting in a pickup truck. Yeah, and absolutely. So and, you- and it starts even further back because we've got another session this afternoon. But working closely with the architectural firm, sure. uh, building those, those uh, project specifications, mm-hmm. what is it we're looking to have done, make sure that that's very detailed, well thought out, looked at at every aspect, and then have people bid on those jobs, making sure that those are verified bids and that we bring back to our school board for final sure. approval. That gets us into, okay, now we have the green light and then the real work begins. So talk a little bit about what you do from start to finish and then you're partnering with, with our architect. Well, as, as an example, like this afternoon we have a, uh, a bid opening for the pre-purchase of geothermal equipment for the large project at the high school. Throughout the years we've identified, identified what we need and the systems we want to put in. But yes, a very important part is, is those bid specifications and plans. It's the base of what we're doing. And if we have a weak base, well, the structure's not going to stand. Sure. Well, and it'll just continue to go on and on. So, as you mentioned, a very important part is organizing, coming up with a, a detailed plan on how to execute all the projects. I remember when we did uh, the West Aurora Learning Center, that was the old dryer clinic that had been there for years and no improvements had been made to that building. And we, 1964 build, if I remember yeah. the original. But, and that was a different architectural firm, but I remember going through them or through that building with them, popping ceiling tiles, removing stuff, getting stuff out of our way and identifying all the problems that were up above the ceiling that you couldn't see unless you went and looked. Sure. 
So we made that real clear. And uh, I don't know if you recall, but that bid process took a bit longer because there was a lot more to that building than what met the eye. So it's very, very important that we do all that investigative and all the detailed planning. Uh, and we have two big projects coming up this year, the geothermal that I mentioned and the HVAC renovation at Jewel, which and are just, difficult projects. Just to clarify, too, I know that, you know, you, you referenced the, what did we do, $23 million worth of geothermal in the district? 25, actually. 25 in 2016. And was an immense scope of work, and so all the all the wells, yes, four or five hundred mm-hmm. foot deep wells in many of our sites uh, that we drilled into the ground so yeah. that we could provide heating and cooling for our our buildings that didn't have that ability. We've drilled all those holes in preparation for the the eventual transition from the traditional boiler chiller to mm-hmm. the geothermal, which is the project at the high school, which two big wings that we're doing converting yeah. next summer, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And then that over at Jewel, it's a traditional system, mm-hmm. um, but it's seen its 20-some-plus years, and now it's time to replace. Yep. And so we have the, the great opportunity to do that, yep. so just for people listening. Well, I don't know. How many bid packages did we have in 2016? Several. And one of them was simply the drilling of the wells, Yes. which is something that I'd never done or been, been a part of. And that's a whole different set of folks that you have to be out there in the mud with them and try to understand what they're going through. And I think one of our tougher locations was Washington Middle School. It was, you know, we got a foot down and it became a swamp. And the equipment they used was larger than what they should have. Yeah. You know, probably not applicable for that, uh, for the task they were trying to accomplish. But uh, a lot of challenges there. But every day out there with them in the mud, that's a different breed of folks for sure. Very hard, laborious work. You bet. I think we had to, we had a hard time finding subcontractors to be able to perform the work because there's not many people that did that. There specific weren't many. Work. No, we had three different uh, well drilling contractors. Yeah, yeah, and there weren't a lot of folks. You're right that that do that kind of work. And and I'm going to skip a little bit here because I we're hitting on this uh, the green footprint and our sustainability that lends itself to that with our geothermal mm-hmm. and Pat Callahan I. I all the credit in the world. I know what we did. Our first project was at Smith mm-hmm. a couple years before we got here. Maybe more than that, but uh, certainly was that first project. And then you introduced that as a possibility. We, just as a historical piece, we shut down our district four days my first year here because we didn't have the ability to cool 11 of our buildings. Some of those spaces were 97 plus degrees in the classrooms. And so we're really challenged with closing down school because we didn't have the capacity to cool down. And when we passed the referendum, uh, that was that was a big chunk of how we were going to address not only ha- not having to replace boilers, but to provide a system that gave us both heating and cooling at the same time and through a sustainability uh, approach. So if you could talk a little bit, because we've, we've really expanded beyond just our geothermal, if you could give a brief explanation of what that is, the impact on our environment, and then some of our, our uh, solar projects that we've done in our buildings. Yeah, Smith School was the, the pilot program, and essentially that was one way for us to secure air conditioning without raising the utility expense on that building. So we had an opportunity because it was two years prior to the referendum to really study that. Did it work? 
you know, was the building cooling properly? Did we really save money in terms of how we were going to uh, uh, pay for the air conditioning side? Everybody knows in the summertime you get a bigger electric bill because you have your air conditioning on. Um, and I think that's an important, you know, perspective with, when we look at a school district that has, you know, almost 20 buildings uh, and millions of square feet under roof. And if you take unair conditioned space and you decide to air condition it, you end up creating an expense. And that expense, when we're in a state that has challenged with their yes. finances, particularly for school districts, you know, what are we doing to set the district in a, on a path that gives them the ability to be sustainable financially as well as sustainable from a, okay, a green technology? So the geothermal was, was an opportunity to, to use a renewable source of energy, right? We're taking the earth, we're drilling wells, and I think we drilled over 600 wells throughout the district. And all we're doing is using the heat of the earth through the course of 12 months to either heat up the earth or cool the earth during the cycle. So the geothermal serves as kind of the boiler, the heat sink during the summertime and then serves, I'm sorry, then the wintertime and then in the summertime serves as the, as the chiller, if you will. And that provides the district this, this kind of sustainable strategy with simplification of mechanical systems, reduction and maintenance, all the things that we want to try to help the school district if you look at it as a business, right, where can we save money and where can we shave our dollars to, so we can actually have more resources for our Absolutely. kids? Um, so that if was the I, kind If of, I can interrupt sure. that part, just so people have a, a context, I think that first winter we spent in excess of $800,000 on our heating bill. I mean, it was a heavy, it was a hard winter, but that's that's a lot to pay for. for your, think about your home, your natural gas bill. That was a big ticket. That was nine years ago. Think about what it would cost in today's dollars. And so that's not an insignificant amount of money that we expend that we can now put back into our, our instruction. Absolutely. And, and, and I guess that's how we've always kind of had this long-term strategy on what sustainability really is. You know, it's, you got to do the right thing for the environment. Mother Earth is here and we only get one of them, so we got to take care of her. But the reality is that, that we can also leverage that to be more efficient so that when we talk about sustainability, we're talking about sustainability in the classroom, sustainability in the district, both financially, um, as well as ability to have a truly sustainable green technology that we're leveraging. And that got us to the point we're looking at, wait a minute, let's look at all of our systems. Let's see how much money we can really save. So we started looking at solar. So now we have almost one or 2.4 gigawatts of solar on district buildings, right? That was the next step in the process. Okay, we kind of took care of, you know, reducing our expense in terms of natural gas. Um, Things are now geothermal. We do have some traditional buildings, but we didn't bother going after the opportunity to replace those because in reality it was more expensive because those buildings were already air conditioned and, the, and the, there was additional life left in the, in the building components. Absolutely. Now we're needing to do that mm -hmm. at Jewel in this particular summer. But again, that building is really efficient and we're looking at different ways to make it more efficient. So by adding geothermal and then in turn complementing that with with solar i think the district is poised and put themselves in a position to save real dollars as it relates to utilities everybody understands that utilities never go down they go up and it costs more to heat and cool your home and so our school buildings are no different that makes us a better environmental partner as well absolutely i mean we and i'm trying to remember the the number of roofs that we are covering with solar are we at six i think we're at six yeah and, it you know, some of them think the high school, some fairly significant arrays on top of those. I mean, I think, Pat Callahan, if I remember uh, quoting you, we have over a million square feet of roof in our district. That's correct. And so you think about those opportunities, not only to use the, the power of the sun to help uh, defray 
and make us more utility neutral or getting closer to that. But also, it, it, as we either coat or replace our roofs by putting these solar arrays on the roof, it extends the life of that roof. Um, so we're accomplishing multiple positives along the way. That's correct. Yeah. We have you to thank for that. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, I'm going to shift a little bit to, to Mr. Dacey. Um, probably a little bit of a, a sore spot, but I think there's... You know, we, we've gone through some uh, some trials and tribulations with our stadium renovation. Mm -hmm. um, there's been some challenges in terms of, uh, you know, we, if you think back that whiteboard that first year and then, and now we can fill volumes electronically of the projects that we've completed. But I think this one is one that was probably most frustrating because there were some things that were out of our control. Uh, there was some strikes. There was some um, some changes of plans. There was some material challenges. You know, coming out of the pandemic, there was some uh, chain of availability concerns. You know, simple things like fencing. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a lot of lead time on some of those. So, if you could, I know we have we have a culminating event tomorrow night mm -hmm. to celebrate uh, where we are, and then we have some some actual finishes. So. Talk a little bit about uh, some of the challenges sure. um, and how we've addressed those, because this is this really gets to the heart of your your responsibility and role as a project manager of how do we resolve some of these, sure. uh, where we are right now with our stadium reservation that we're really proud of, and then kind of where our finish line is. Well, the major thing that took place at the stadium was the replacement of the field and the track, yes, which we were able to get done on time. And it looks outstanding. It does. But part of that that was included in that project was the renovation of the, the main entry, including a, a new concession stand that was to be built. And really, the precast was donated by ATMI, a company out of Aurora here, which we're very grateful for. But unfortunately, the, the project was impacted by a labor strike at the quarries where we get the aggregate for the architectural precast material to, to make the precast walls. Sure. So that had the biggest impact by far. If we didn't have that strike, we would have finished the concession stand on time. But yeah, that's been frustrating. And you mentioned some of our other challenges, just with the inflation, the cost of fuel, all these things, um, as, as well as the quarry strike that impacted the cost of concrete, uh, which went up significantly, significantly since bid time. And that goes back to working with the contractors. You know, it cost them a lot more money Absolutely. to do the work that they bid out, that we bid, you know, six months ago. So that's been a challenge. And you're right. We, our fencing project was postponed one year because of the pandemic and the shortages of material. And the price went up um, from what we forecasted at first, for sure. But the project's moving along now. It's due to be completed by the end of September, at least substantially complete. Concrete work should be done this week. Our ornamental fencing looks great with the precast piers and the aluminum fencing itself. But yes, that's our first project that we weren't able to get done on time. Out and of I, many. You talk about yeah. the uh, the board we had in our, our my old office where we had, uh, what, 10 different buildings that summer, Pat, in 2016, that we were pretty much gutting the HVAC and replacing with geothermal piping. And I'll never forget, you know, our goal was, it's got to be cool. You told me. Yep. Got to be cool. Three days before school started, we were cooling every facility we touched. We might not have had every floor done, Pat, but <laughs> we, we had, uh, those buildings were cooling. The concession stand has been a challenge yeah. to answer your question. But we're going to get it done. 
And tomorrow night it culminates with the dedication it ceremony does. of the stadium. Right. And um, that'll be an exciting celebration. It will. Um, and I think once to be, I think to, to use your, your words, when it becomes no longer looks like a construction site will be in a, an important pivot yes. point for us. I think so too. Yeah. Yes, it's a, a much needed improvement. It'll look great. Yeah, you, your, uh, your comments about cooling the building, you know, that was, I knew that was gonna be a pivotal point because we disrupted a lot of lives. Yeah, we sure did. Uh, not only to get the referendum passed, but then the execution of the projects. And by God, when those when those folks came back in, if it wasn't cool, and it was like, huh, oh, yeah. that's when the doubters come out. Right. And, and it's worked well ever since, too. Has. I mean, it really it has. has been efficient and almost completely trouble-free. Well, once again, it, you know, it just reconfirms the value of, of having you here and, and you know, for lack of better words, bird dogging people to make sure that that people are accountable. Here's what you said you were going to do and when you were going to do it, and and let's get this thing done and get it to the finish line. And it's going to be a beautiful end product. But we've had some struggles getting there, as, yeah. as I'm sure a lot of districts have experienced. I think so too. Yeah, um, I'm going to shift over to Pat Callahan a little bit. Uh, just people who see you as Studio GC and and the leader of that business, but you also. Um, Participate in the public sector in terms of the the, the Batavia Park District, and and um, you're you're on a, on a leadership role there. How does how does that experience translate into working with whether it's here or any other project where you're involving taxpayer dollars? As you said earlier, you focus a lot on schools, and we're reliant on the the taxpayers' dollars, and so we are the stewards of those those fiscal responsibilities. But how is your experience with the Park District, a very public entity in and of itself, how does that translate into your thinking about being mindful of that? So, um, you know, my wife and I moved to Batavia <clears throat> in mid-90s. And um, before I had kids, she, I asked, I said, well, can I put one more thing on my plate? So I volunteered to uh, put my hat in the ring to be appointed to the Batavia Park District, and I've been on there for 24 years. So no kids when I started, and now they're all, now I'm an empty nester. So, but the reason why I did it was because there was aspects of public finance and kind of public entities that I didn't understand very well. And by being on the board, I got a great education. And not only by that education, I understand levies and finance and public dollars and funding and restricted funding and all the things that kind of go into really not what an architect does, but what an architect should know in working with a public entity. So I think in many regards, it's given me a greater or a, a broader um, network of knowledge that helps me foster discussions to make better decisions with our school districts. And it, you know, to, to the point where we talked earlier about utility expense. Right. I mean, you know, you, you collect so much each year, you get so much from the state, the state takes a little bit away, you know, EAVs go up and down and, and yet the utility bills still come in. Sure. Right. So when you look at things in the context in which you're trying to deal with them, you have to understand that there isn't more money to be had. Like, oh, the project's coming over budget. Can you have some more money added to the project? Well, that's an absolute no. Right. You just can't do those kind of things. So when you, when you do your cost estimates and those kind of things, they have to be right because I've sat on the other side of the table. Right. I'm the now in the chair of the person approving the project and have consultants working for us. And so the, the pressure you feel on both sides of the table, I think, is really what what I've learned in, through that experience with, with Batavia. And I think that has actually helped me be a better architect for, for our school districts and our public entities because it's quite simply, you know, when you establish a budget, that's the budget. Yes, and, and I think that's a, 
it helps you become more thoughtful, that's for sure. Because when, when you say, well, here's what the cost is, and we say, well, we can't, we promised our taxpayers, here's, here's all the money we have, and there's no more. I mean, it's not like you're going to go out and make more widgets and, and make, you know, more, more profit and loss statements. Your dollars are your dollars. They're pretty finite. And, and I think, you know, to be understanding of that and cognizant, how do we work together then to make this project work? Maybe it's changing the scope and maybe it's changing, let's think about it differently. And I think you bringing that to the table certainly helps us. Yeah, well, thank you. It's my pleasure to do so. So we have talked about some challenges. We've talked about, um, I think, fondly, we look back and, and are glad that some of our projects are behind us because uh, it's been a lot. I think uh, to put a, a, an exclamation point, you know, not only did we pass the $84.2 million referendum, as we've talked many times I'm extremely grateful and extremely thankful to our, our community for approving that because it's changed the trajectory of our district and how we think about providing an equitable educational environment for every one of our kids in all of our facilities. Um, and so that was super important for us. But I'd like to, as we wrap up here, to, to get your feedback on, maybe take you back down memory lane, what, what's a, a project or a an instance that you would be most proud of to put on your resume or to when you were to talk to, to somebody at some point in time to say, here's something I'm re- I feel really good about. So as our guest, Pat Callahan, what's something that you can look back to and, and put a, a bow on and say, this is something I'm really proud of? Well, it's kind of like uh, having all your children and saying you love them all equally. <laughs> um, the reality is there are there are pieces of the the bigger referendum project that I am that I feel very personally satisfied with. And what I mean by that is, you know, Hill School for one, you know, really taking the time to understand the community's concerns about the building and what it should look like. Um, taking the time to really help the teachers transition from a building that was built in 1888 to a building that was going to be built and basically occupied in 2016, 2017. You know, what does that look like in terms of the change of how they how they teach, what type of spaces they'll have available. But the probably single most thing or single biggest thing that I'll always remember is the engagement of the students at that building and they, them sharing with us some very personal stories about things that they are challenged with just being in, in the building and going yes. to school and us as a design team responding to those in a way where on opening day when you cut the ribbon those kids came back to you and say thank you you know because it's really all about the kids really i've always viewed this that our clients are really our the students that we work for yes we have contracts with the district and the board and so on and so forth and work with administrators but in the end it's the students we're trying to satisfy so it's a great story and it, and it's a, as it was a very unique project uh, where we had roughly just short of 4 acres we had our 1888 building, which, if you'll remember, when we did our referendum campaign, the Civil War was fought between 1861 and 1865, and 23 short years later, Nancy Hill Elementary was born. And so we were one of the, I think, one of the five oldest functioning buildings in the state of Illinois. And to be able to build a brand-new state-of-the-art building on the same site while we still went to school at the original building uh, was quite the feat. And to put a, an exclamation point in your comment about the kids ran into um, a representative from uh, the contractor, Henry Brothers, uh, a couple weeks back and remembered a quote that I had from one of our students that walked in the door for the first time and said, is this for us? 
And it was a poignant moment that brings to a little illumination on your comment that, yes, our kids are our clients. That's, that's our purpose. Um, and so to say, yes, young man, this is for you uh, was, was quite a, a satisfying moment. So thank you for sharing that. My pleasure. Pat Dacey. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the work that took place during the referendum, all that work, was an incredible accomplishment, in my opinion. I agree. Getting cooling and replacing, really, the heating and cooling system, systems in 10 facilities and building New Hill Elementary School in that timeline, if you'll remember, was against my better judgment. <laughs> <laughs> but we persevered. But yeah, you persevered. We all did. So that was a great accomplishment. But I think the one that sticks in my mind the most is the dryer medical clinic, the, ah, the yeah. renovation of that building and how it looked before we started. Yes. And even purchasing the administration building. We didn't change the way it looked from the inside, but we changed the way it was on the inside. But this whole campus here that, that was built, such an improvement yes. in what was here before, I think is, is a heck of an accomplishment, something to be really proud of for everybody. The other thing is throughout the referendum and even after that, what we've been able to do for our fine director of operations, Jeff Schiller, and his facilities. Yes. We've improved all the pavement, almost every square inch in the school district. We've got our roofs now on a replacement schedule and a maintenance schedule. So the building envelope throughout the district has been improved, and it's enabled him to now get on a system to replace things systematically and affordably. We've we were able to finally purchase him a, an operations center, which is just going to pay dividends for the district in the long end. But those are some of the things that stick out in my mind the most. Yeah, I know those are pieces that we can't forget. That's part of, uh, you know, when people think about, well, those, that's the bricks and mortar and yeah. of, of our of education. But if you don't have a, a good foundation, a base, you can't do the good work of teaching and learning with our kids and our staff. So. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that is a credit to you two gentlemen. We, we really appreciate uh, your, your work behind the scenes that is now evidenced um, in front of the scenes. Uh, but we are grateful for your expertise, your diligence, and your leadership. Um, and so thanks for being here today to share a l- little bit of a, a look behind the curtain of what you guys do. And um, we, are, we are grateful for our journey and grateful for the opportunity from our community. But I uh, really want to extend a, a thank you for you guys and what you bring to our district and uh, for being here to share some of your thoughts. Thank you very much. Thank you, yeah, thank you for inviting us. Great conversation. So please remember that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, including iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and the TuneIn radio app. And I would encourage you to subscribe to our broadcast and please give us some feedback so we can continue to improve our discussions. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next time.